0: With Capella University's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The legends are true. But
1: overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes!
0: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I'm 51, and I'm constantly wondering, well, if I start something new, is it too late? And you've reinvented yourself many times. You know, you've been everything from a dishwasher to the publisher of Forbes magazine, and it's more possible than ever now to flourish later in life, which
1: doesn't mean you're not gonna flourish early in life. How I define late blooming, by the way, because I was kind of surprised there is no clinical definition or scientific or medical definition of late bloomer. So I said, aha, I'm going to propose one. And I think it is the intersection of your deepest talents and your deepest passions or sense of mission. In other words, The passions that are so deep, you'll be willing to sacrifice for them. But I want to ask, like, if someone's listening to this,
0: they're 40, 45, 50, and they're thinking, boy, it's too late for me to be a late bloomer. I don't really know what my passions are. How should they be thinking? Like, what could they try? What could they practice? So... This is a topic very near and dear to my heart—the topic of late bloomers, uh, which the title is called "Late Bloomers: The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement." It's by Rich Colgard. You might know him if you read Forbes magazine. He's the publisher for Forbes. He has he has a column there. Uh, Rich, I think we've I think we've been Facebook friends all along through this whole cycle, and I I had a column at Forbes.com for many years and I was up in your offices all the time, but this is the first time we're actually meeting face-to-face and I love the concepts in the book,
1: the book itself. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much, James. It's uh, really an honor to be here and in a comedy club. I mean, what could be better? So, so late bloomers, the power of patience in a world obsessed with early
0: achievement. There's really three concepts there, which is one uh, I'm gonna go from the bottom up a world obsessed with early achievement like we tend to um correctly or incorrectly uh reward the prodigies they're like the stars like mozart you know movies are made out of him but nobody makes the movies out of someone who starts composing at age 48 and has an opera out there even if it's great it's like ah he's 48 it's not it's not mozart uh and 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 you kind of show some real serious dangers uh, in a variety of ways about being obsessed with early achievement the power of patience which we'll talk about and late bloomers and I'm 51 and I'm constantly wondering well if I start something new is it too late and you've reinvented yourself many times and maybe you could, you know your story is you know you've been everything from a dishwasher to the publisher of Forbes magazine and you, were, you, know, you worked for Runner's World and uh, you have so many interesting stories of, of people you've met and stuff you've done. You've reinvented yourself quite a bit. When
1: is it too late to start something? And then I want to ask you about your, your personal story. Well, it's never too late, but it helps to know how the brain evolves over the course of your life. For example, this 2015 study led by Laura Germine of Harvard, along with MIT and Massachusetts General Hospital tried to look at a simple question, at what age do we achieve peak cognitive abilities? And the answer was wonderfully complex. We do certain things well in our 20s, certain things well in our 30s, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all through the vast majority of our lifetime, as long as we maintain physical health and we stay mentally engaged. So sure enough, rapid synaptic processing speed and working memory, the things you need to have if you're going to be a coder, especially under a deadline, are cognitive abilities that peak in our late teens and in our twenties. In our thirties, forties, and fifties, we acquire a whole range of executive and management functioning skills, including empathy, communication, deeper pattern recognition. And then as we get uh, into our sixties and seventies, again, provided we've taken care of ourselves and we've stayed mentally engaged, we really come into our peak years of what you might call wisdom. And there's a fascinating neurological explanation for wisdom put forth by a 72-year-old neuroscientist named Elkanan Goldberg.
0: I feel like there's some self-interest, though, in that if he's 72, he's, of course, going to say, here's the reason why I'm so smart now.
1: Well, yeah, I suppose you could discount that a little bit, but I, I detect nothing but authenticity when I read his books and when I interviewed him. He said that in his late 60s and early 70s, he was able to somehow leapfrog to logical conclusions without going down the logic tree. And his theory is that that what happens only after a prefrontal cortex is fully mature, which might happen in our mid-20s, it might happen for others in their late 20s and early 30s, only then does this amazing flowering of the communications network's between the brain's left hemisphere and right hemisphere, only then does it begin to happen and it keeps getting better and better and better. And so his neurological definition of wisdom is really the conversation that the two hemispheres of the brain are having because one side of the brain perceives things one way and the other side of the brain has a lot of stored memories and perceives things another way. And wisdom is being able to operate with ambiguity. You know whether you're dealing with ambiguous people or ambiguous situations. Yeah, so so I'm wondering, like, you know,
0: is it because the brain has gotten uh, somehow uh, through through constant use has gotten better at communicating with the bo- with between the right and the left side, or have we just essentially chunked so many thousands and tens of thousands of experiences that we're able to, like, when I meet someone now. I become. I'm a much better judge of character. I don't necessarily say, think I'm a great judge of character, but I'm better than I was in my 20s because I've now met so many people and seen the outcomes of so many experiences with people. I'm able to categorize better, and, and the same goes for any situation. I'm in a situation. I'm able to. I'm able to even intuitively think. Okay, I've been through this hundreds of times this particular situation, here's what usually happens if I do X, and here's what usually happens if I do Y. So it's almost like I'm, I'm chunking these things.
1: Yeah, I think we're talking about the same thing, though. Uh, we, we are chunking those things. All of those stored memories um, in the left hemisphere of the brain creates what's called, you know, future memories. We're able to create future memories. You see something, novel perceptions happen on the right side. So you might see somebody for the first time, and they're, Something like you've met mm-hmm. in the past and then the, all those chunks of memories that exist on the left side of your brain go to work on that, but you've never met exactly that kind of a person before. And that's that back and forth communication gives you that intuition about that person. So so, so it's interesting because let's say someone's done the same job
0: for 40 years, okay, which is what used to be the pattern for a very short time in our society, really. Let's say a few hundred years it's been like that. Um, but let's say that somebody does the same thing for 40 years. Do they have less ability to do that? Because they've seen the same people. They've been in the same experiences over and over and over again. Like, is the what I'm really asking is the opposite. Is it possible to practice? So you get even more wise as you get older.
1: Well, I think that it is. But remember, part of wisdom is not just all those stored memories, those chunks. It's also exposing yourself to new situations so that you're constantly learning. I'm a huge believer in age diversity, age diversity in friendships. Age diversity is a powerful form of diversity that's underexploited inside of organizations. So I think that wise older person gets wiser still when they're constantly being stimulated by young people in coaching and yeah. mentoring young people.
0: You know, it reminds me of, um, you know, and this is related to your obsession with early achievement. I feel like the obsession among children now, and by children, I mean, 18 year olds, this obsession among kids to get into like a great college has become, has become so extreme, you know, tuitions keep going up and, and percentage of acceptance in every school in the country, in the U S has basically gone down. Like, even you know Ivy League schools have gone from like let's say teens to seven percent acceptance rates each year in the past ten fifteen years, and yet still, and, and yet, it's not like companies are demanding these degrees as much anymore. Like Google said, even we don't care about your degree as much. And you know, I think Amazon and
1: Netflix. Well, the they've same thing. said that. Mm-hmm. They've said that. I still wouldn't want to be the kid from Podunk State. Applying for a job at Google, despite what they might have said. There are many screeners in place, mm. and certainly having stratospherically high SAT scores, particularly the math portion, if you're if you're on a STEM track at Google, and being from Stanford or MIT or Caltech or any of the IVs is still advantageous. And, and that isn't going to change overnight. Yeah, there, there you see little changes here and there. The University of Chicago is no longer. Demanding the SAT, but if you know you're going to score 1600 or 2400 or wherever the scale is now, are you not going to take it? Because it's going to be an edge if you take it. Uh, but 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 you know you, it's interesting though because what does college
0: give you that helps you in in life? Like you just mentioned, it's important to have friendships with age diversity. College is really the last time in my life that all my friends
1: were the same age as me. After that, none of I don't I don't even know anyone my age. Well, there's a powerful case for socialization at college and, and, and all of those things. But when you look at what colleges are charging now, when you consider that that college tuition and all the associated expenses around a college degree or university education has exceeded the rate of inflation by 3x since 1970, they're taking advantage of the pricing power that they have. You know, college
0: college expenses are getting higher. You know, I don't know why students keep paying them like is it like what in what cases are is it worth it
1: well it may not be really worth it in terms of what it really does for any particular student but the perception still lingers that it does i mean just look at what was in the news 3 weeks ago or so right with the college bribery scandals around the country and that's just sort of a more perverse representation of this idea that that stuff matters and the right college matters And you could argue whether it was students driving this. It seemed more likely that the parents were driving this. And then there's a second set of questions. Were the parents motivated by a fear that if their child didn't get into an elite university or the best university, they could even even with help? Or were the parents worried somehow about a loss of uh, social status in a status competition because they wanted to brag about their kids At an elite private school at at the cocktail party and they would have been ashamed to say that their kid was going to long beach state or going to a trade school
0: you know and and speaking of which, i should mention you went to stanford and but as you mentioned in the book it was uh, you call it a A lot of asterisks
1: around that like
0: you you basically were recruited for you know uh track and cross country but the coach Uh, misinterpreted your scores for the 2,000-yard run for a 2,000-meter run, which significantly is a 10% difference. So he thought you were a superstar when you were kind of just mediocre. Kind
1: of (laughs) just mediocre. You know, I was captain of my junior college team. Um, In fact, I went to, after graduating, uh, barely making the honor roll, the top 20% in my high school graduating class, I went off to junior college where I still kind of struggled, but I but I kind of figured how to game the system a little better. And then some combination of being the overrated track runner from North Dakota and being from North Dakota, because there were Stanford schools like it were more uh, worried about geographic diversity within the United States back then. Um, I, I was that kid from North Dakota who might contribute to the track team, and I probably want a coin flip along the way. Uh, among kids who otherwise weren't academically qualified. And let us not forget in the 1970s, Stanford was a up and coming regionally excellent university. It wasn't where it is today. They had a 25% admissions rate. Today they have a 3% admissions rate. Oh my gosh. So i benefited great. I always tell people pick the college that's gonna have a greater reputation in 20 or 30 years because you can you can ride that one. But I barely got through Stanford. I picked a Mickey Mouse major and course we called it the Mickey Mouse Mickey Mouse classes. Uh, there were always Mickey Mouse classes. I guess if you're going to play what, Divi- what was your major? It was political science. But Sanford plays Division I college sports. They're in the, you know, the they were in the then Pac 8, the Pac-12 today. Let's be honest, you're not going to compete at the Pac-12 level if you're if you only are letting kids in based on based on their academic excellence. So they always had that going for it. And they would justify it by saying, we're looking for overall excellence. And I think they were. But even then, I graduated with the bare minimum number of grades or or units with a a gentleman's B average. And I say gentleman's B, and I was not a gentleman. I was not a prep school kid or anything like that. What I mean is, is that it was really like a C, because if you're actually headed for a C you had the opportunity to drop your class two weeks before the final and nothing would go on your record. So if you're headed for a C, you dropped it.
0: That to me, I wish I I had known about that. I wish that was possible at my old college because my recurring nightmare ever since college is that I'm somehow failing all my courses but I can't drop out of them. So I wish I had at least knew that in my nightmares and that would save me a lot of uh, waking up in a cold sweat situations. So you graduate Stanford, and then, then you kind of were sort of
1: figuring out life. Like you were a dishwasher, you were a temp. Well, I had a brief seven-month career at Runner's World, and I quit. I was an editorial assistant, and uh, I loved Runner's World. I grew up reading track and field news. Runner's World and Sports Illustrated were my holy trinity of magazines back then. But um, But I really was a poor employee. I quit ahead of a firing. Why was I going to be fired because I I was a stoner I picked fights with my colleagues and I misspelled names on racing results and I don't know why I wasn't fired uh, outright but I but but it was in the wind and so I left and then what did I do well I I wasn't equipped for anything my senior college roommates were off in Stanford Law School one was at the University of Pennsylvania getting a master's and chemical engineering, he would go to work on the space shuttle project. Another one is getting his his PhD in psychology and his master's of divinity at a theological seminary. Today he's a clinical psychologist. And and I went off to be a dishwasher, a temporary typist, and a security guard. And I'll tell you Oh, I, that would have been great
0: if you went back to a Stanford Stanford like reunion and everyone's like, well, I'm a brain surgeon. I'm <laughs> a nuclear scientist. Oh, I'm I'm the mall cop. I'm a security yeah.
1: guard at the mall. <laughs> I know. I was coached. One of my sympathetic roommates said, said to me, "Tell them in your your insecurities, just make it plural. You know, they'll think you're selling stocks or something like uh, that." Wait, 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 why, why? Well, just because. I mean, being a mall cop, you know, really. Um, the fact of the matter is, I was too embarrassed to go to those early reunions. Uh. I mean, I felt a great deal of shame. I didn't see a lot of comedy in it. Although there was one comedic moment, when I was 25 years old, one of my security guard shifts, I had a graveyard shift at a trucking yard in North San Jose. And I was walking the fence perimeter and I heard a dog barking and I swung my flashlight to see what the hullabaloo was all about. And it was a Rottweiler in the yard next door. And it suddenly occurred to me with force that at age 25, my professional colleague was a dog months later steve jobs also 25 would take apple public and if you want really a shattering comparison you know that's that that was it for
0: me well of course there's a saying when you compare you despair but how did it feel i mean i see even now i get emails all the time where questions ask me oh i'm 26 i don't know what i want to do with my life i feel like already i'm a failure and it's too late Were you starting to feel that way as you saw not only your your former classmates and colleagues kind of moving through the career world and achieving their dreams, but also then guys like Steve Jobs, your age, being worth $80 and a billion?
1: I felt a profound sense of shame. Eventually, what led me out of that was that I became a, a temporary typist. I barely qualified that for that. You had to type... 50 words a minute and I could barely get over that hurdle. But one of my assignments led me to a research organization, Palo Alto, the Electric Power Research Institute. And in the Palo Alto Hills, beautiful location. And they had a, a, a locker room and a lot of the engineers, the program and project managers would run at noon. And I joined them and I, I'd quit smoking pot by then. And I was starting to run again, and they asked me, what on earth are you doing here as a temporary typist? Since they got to know me, and I said, I don't, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm just stuck. And they offered me, uh, this guy saved my life. Uh, a guy named Carl Stalkoff offered me the opportunity to be a technical writer and editor for one of the divisions at the Electric Power Research Institute. That did two things. It gave me back my sense of dignity. I think it also coincided with some reasonable uh, near completion of the maturity of my prefrontal cortex. And the most important thing, I think, is that I was working with engineers. Now, I grew up in a family where nobody thought logically. My dad was a high school athletic director, a great guy, but he was not. He was not particularly a logical thinker. He was an intuitive thinker. Nobody talked the language of systems and logic, and anything like that around our house. We didn't know business people. My dad was intimidated by successful business people, even though he's kind of the king of sports, in my town. My mom uh, had a native intelligence, but 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 when she heard hoofbeats, she thought zebras, not horses. Always leaping to these magical conclusions about everything maybe that's where i got my imagination but it was such it was so i became really interested in how power was generated basically all power was generated then you know uh before solar you you basically you got to figure out some way to boil water yeah and then you create steam and you drive the steam and you turn turbines and to me that was I didn't so even know ele- that. <laughs> so, element, yeah, it doesn't matter whether you boil the water with nuclear power or you boil the water with coal or natural gas. And the water then fuels the steam. The steam, which turns the turbine. And it turns and to the- electricity. Yeah,
0: it turns a okay. dynamo,
1: and that's how you generate electricity. I became fascinated with that. I became fascinated. It, that led me into, I remember there's a book around the at that time maybe it came a little later but the making of the atomic bomb by richard rhodes oh yeah that was, was like 1986 yeah something like that. so it was a little later but i had already i'd become interested in that kind of stuff for the first time and so even though it wasn't silicon valley technology my brain was turning and it was turning uh toward a more rationalistic view of life and a, a sy- systematic view of life and and um uh, in addition to, I think, some of the intuition that uh, intuitive skills that I already had. But it was that is when I really literally felt a renaissance, a waking up. So I went into a deep pit in middle school at around the age of 12. I was very slow to physically mature, it wrecked my confidence. And I didn't crawl out of that pit uh, other than a little periodic popping the head out. You know, maybe some little minor victory in in track and field, and obviously pulling off the undeserved upset of getting into Stanford. But I went into a pit at about age twelve and didn't fully emerge until I was around twenty six or twenty seven. Well, well, it's interesting because you you say in the
0: book uh, again about the the prefrontal cortex is starts to be fully developed in the mid twenties, and that's kind of this the the governing part of your brain, like that helps you make. Um, you know, essentially better decisions and more kind of thoughtful decisions where you're not as impulsive. Yeah. Psychologists call it executive functioning Hmm. where we, yeah. So you're not, you're not as impulsive. You don't take as many risks. You're, you're starting to think about the future and the past and, and, and so on. Yeah. All of that, all of that. And, And, And I think that's why people think that as you get older, since that's like almost like that's a peak where I think people feel after twenty-five, if you're gonna switch careers or your journey in life or your path in life in some way, you better do it soon because it's not gonna happen after 40, 50, 60.
1: Remember that old saying, if you wanna if you wanna go duck hunting, don't shoot at the ducks, shoot where the duck will be. I guess Wayne Gretzky in hockey, you know, he skated to where the puck will be. I think it's an advantage to know that you will change over the course of your lifetime and the way that you think, you're gonna you're going to begin to rely less on raw technical skill in whatever you do, whether it's computer coding or anything else, and move toward a more holistic view of the world because that's the way your brain works. It's important to kind of know that because I think I don't think you would want to go back and be a software coder under pressure today.
0: No, and it's funny. Um, so I, I was a software coder, right? I majored in it. I went to grad school for it. I started a software company. 25 years ago, uh, and then I, you know, then I, then I matured. I was 25, 26, 27 years old. And I started to be more of a business, you know, I was running a business of with software, so I became more of a manager and I had software developers working for me. And then when I, I did some more software around 2001, 2002. And then a few years after that, I guess I was about 30. I was trying to do software and it was like that part of my brain was starting to shut off. And just, and what's interesting to me is that a few months ago I figured, you know, I want to try something and I figured I'll, I'll program it up like I used to. And so I, I, I haven't programmed anything in like 10 years. I pull out the software. I set up my software environment. I sit there and I don't know what I'm doing. I'm like, so, I always thought software was like riding a bike. Like I knew how to do it. I could, do it like with not looking and just not even thinking, but suddenly I no longer knew
1: how to do it. Well, there you go. I mean, that's exactly what the research that Laura Jermine, um produced uh, out of Harvard, MIT, and Mass General said exactly that. I mean, our twenties are uniquely good if you're in, if you have talent as a software programmer. The twenties, the teens, and twenties are a uniquely good time to really harvest those gifts
0: and, and you know it reminds me of Forbes actually so uh this is this is neither here nor there but uh in terms of whether I was talented or not I was I was fast I was super fast and very messy and the reason I know this is there was a guy at Forbes. I was walking around Forbes offices because I was friends with Mike Smith who worked there and I ran into another guy who had been at HBO with both Mike and me working in the same department and the, and he said, oh, James, good to see you. And I honestly didn't recognize him, but he said he had stayed at HBO past the time I left. And he said, we were all using your code, but nobody could figure it out. It was all a mess, but we knew it was, it all worked, So we didn't know what to, how to change it. Cause it, it was so messy and sloppy, but I knew I was good. Cause I was always very fast at getting big things done, but I was just completely disorganized with it.
1: Yeah. So I think it can give confidence to a lot of people that feel like they're stuck or haven't fully bloomed, that 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 they have these unfolding gifts ahead of them, and and if they can put themselves in a position that combines uh, what what how I define late blooming, by the way, because this sort of uh, uh, produces this question: What do you mean by a late bloomer? And I was kind of surprised there is no clinical definition or scientific or medical definition of a late bloomer. So I said, aha, I'm going to propose one. And I think it is the intersection of your deepest talents and your deepest passions or sense of mission. In other words, the passions that are so deep, you'll be willing to sacrifice for them. And when you're at that intersection, you feel no longer that you're pushed by other people's expectations, something you wrote about very uh, endearingly, and choose yourself, and you begin to feel pulled. You begin to feel pulled almost toward a sort of destiny. And then all the gifts that you're lacking. Well, I've never been in sales. I couldn't sell anything. Well, if you're, if you're being pulled toward your destiny, you suddenly will find that you can sell because it's coming from such an authentic place. Well, I've never had you know, a lot of endurance and you know, ability to overcome adversity. Well, if you're being pulled by something bigger than you, you will get it.
0: Well, and, and you refer in the book to, um, Carol Dweck's, uh, research and mindset, uh, where she talks about, you know, a, a fixed mindset versus a, um, whatever. A growth um, mindset. Yeah. And, and, and how kids now their young people now compared to in 2018 versus 2008 have much more, unfortunately have a fixed mindset, like a brittle sort of mindset. Why do you think that is?
1: Well, let me recount the conversation I had with her. I did interview I was a huge fan of Mindset and a huge fan of all her work. And so I interviewed her for, for Late Bloomers. And I, I started out by saying, congratulations. You know, you've sold a million and a half copies. I just had visited Microsoft and got some private time with Satya Nadella. And I saw Mindset on his shelf. And he said, oh, yeah, that's the book I have everybody at Microsoft read. And that was a huge bestseller maker to have people like Satya Nadella recommending Mindset. And she said, I know, that is so gratifying. I'll tell you what's disappointing, though. What is that? That the academic world doesn't seem to embrace this at all. Well, tell tell me what you mean by that. Then she leaned across her desk. You know, she's about 4'11", you know, and has this dark hair and bangs. And, you know, she looks like that, that costume designer on The Incredibles and she leans forward and she said the kids i see today at stanford where she teaches a freshman psychology class the kids i see today are quote exhausted and brittle they don't want to mar their perfect records so that is a that is a an alarming symptom that goes along with a whole lot of symptoms out there that something is not working this early pressure cauldron is not, it's harming as many people as it's helping, and it may be harming more. I'm sure as you know that that anxiety, depression, and even suicides have been rising and rising precipitously among teens and young adults. In fact, one of the things that catalyzed my willingness to sit down and write Late Bloomers, even sharing my own embarrassing background, was Word was getting around in in Silicon Valley that there was an epidemic of suicides. Hmm. And the Atlantic Monthly, a woman named Hannah Rosen, eventually wrote a cover story in Atlantic called The Silicon Valley Suicides. And in one school year, 2014-2015, in Palo Alto, there were six suicides, three at Gunn High School, two at Palo Alto High School, both of which are public schools, and then one in an all-girls school, Castilea. And what they had in common was that these were these were not these were good kids they didn't appear to have uh, they didn't have uh, addiction problems or anything like that one of the boys who unfortunately took his life had been posting messages on social media along the lines of i'm exhausted from getting up at 3:30 in the morning to keep up with my advanced placement courses
0: yeah look i have two 17 year olds and they They're up at one in the morning, two in the morning, doing homework and crying every night because they're so frustrated. They're so bored. They're so behind. And they got to wake up at six the next day to go to school. And that's five days a week. And there's nothing you can do.
1: I don't know what to do about it. Yeah. Well, I knew that that was a wake-up call. I had to get off my ass and write this book. The mission all along in this book was to start a national conversation about this early-blooming obsession that is that is creating a lot of heartbreak out there and may not be producing the results we think it is. Uh, I Because I think the Mark Zuckerberg would have happened anyway. You didn't need to pressure Mark Zuckerberg. You didn't need to pressure Sergey Brin and Larry Page. And, and it's also important, like you live
0: many stories of people who flourished much later in life. Which doesn't mean you're not gonna flourish early in yeah. life, but just that it's po- more possible than ever now, and there's reasons why. There's both scientific reasons, there's career, there's all sorts of reasons
1: why it's possible to flourish later in life. Well, you think about, uh, in the world of acting, you think about Brian Cranston's career. I mean, he didn't get any significant roles until he was 40, and it's not like he suddenly took up acting when he was 40. He grew up in Los Angeles. He was exposed to this. He wanted to be an actor from the get-go, and he toiled in obscurity and tried things and wore different personalities, you know, and, I mean, just tried different modes of acting. And then finally in his 40s, he begins to break through, and then in his 50s, he just, like, one hit show or movie after another. He's really come into his own. Or you think about, uh, I think the most... When you go to Silicon Valley and, and you're talking about who have been some of the great women in Silicon Valley, it's often not the women that people talk about, the ones that are getting the headlines, uh, the crash and burn stories like Elizabeth Holmes. You know, Diane Green sits at the top of that pyramid. And because she's a self-promoter, people don't outside of the Valley don't know who she is. Well, she's a co-founder of VMware. VMware has a market cap today of about $55 billion dollars. Up until January, she was the CEO of Google Cloud at age 64. Hmm. Uh, she made way for a more sales-driven CEO, but she's still on Google's board. And in her 20s, she just puttered around doing a lot of things. She was an avid sailor. She started a, a sailing competition. She worked for Coleman Campers, you know, the camping gear company. She worked for an offshore oil driller um, in some IT capacity, but she wasn't even allowed on onto the decks of these offshore rigs back then because it was such a male environment that they just couldn't conceive of having a woman out there for, for any number of reasons. And finally, in her 30s, she said, well, it's time, to, it's time to get serious about an adult life. She goes back and gets some advanced degrees in computer science. And then she and her husband and some other people started VMware. And, and to me, that, that's the model that is the model. You take Tom Siebel as another model. I mean, Tom Siebel started Siebel Systems in his in his mid to late 40s, um, and now he's got a company called C3, which is industrial AI or Internet of Things, if you want to call it that, and doing very well. They were, you know, they make these Gartner the you know, the upper right quadrants and in in all of those categories, and he's 68. And uh, I I actually didn't know about C3. I knew he sold, he made billions selling Siebel to Oracle. But, um, you know, then you Well, by along the way, in 2009, months after he started C3 or what's become C3, uh, and I'm going to correct myself, I think he's 66, not 68, he was on a photo safari in uh, Tanzania. He was gored by an elephant and stomped on And one of his lower legs is hanging by a thread. He lost 70 or 80% of his body fluids. He had to survive a bumpy pickup truck Mm. uh, ride to an airport and then rode in a Cessna um, to the Nairobi hospital and was in ICU for months. And then he's had more than 18 uh, 18 to 20 operations. And he's—it's left him about three inches shorter because they've taken bones from oh so many God. parts of his body to repair his lower legs. But here he is leading—you know—leading this this company. It's an incredibly age diverse company too. He's all these young, brilliant people in their twenties, and then he has a lot of these old stable systems veterans. And uh, you know, and here's Tom, the gravelly voiced—you know—old man of Silicon Valley. So it's sort of like you have to know what you're good at. You know what you're
0: like. You said what your you know your 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 talents uh, com- mixed with your passions, and and there's kind of an element of self discovery as you spend your twenties, maybe your thirties, figuring out what those are. Because I think everybody always says, "Oh, I'm 25 and I don't know what my passions are." I think you're just at the very beginning of trying to discover those. And and as you mentioned earlier, you have to have you have to really sort of diversify your experiences. You have to try many things. Like you started working in you know, runner's world, but then upside, and then you got exposed to technology combining these two things. You started upside magazine and it's kind of like just trying these things and combining them.
1: Well, I didn't have an entrepreneurial drop of blood in my body or so I thought I'm still not an alpha entrepreneur in the way that you're an alpha entrepreneur or that my partner at upside, Tony Perkins was the alpha entrepreneur, but I'll tell you a magical moment when whatever entrepreneurial drives that I had were suddenly awakened and it's, January 1984, and I'm watching the Super Bowl, and I see this ad for the Apple Macintosh. And I went the next day at Macy's in the Stanford Shopping Center to have a look at this. And I noticed right away that you could manipulate fonts. Now, there were no laser printers at the time, and there weren't that many. They were just screen fonts. And by this time, I'm doing not only technical writing, but I'm also doing advertising copywriting at a a Silicon Valley ad agency. And I, in one of these rare insights, I just saw the whole world of desktop publishing unfolding in my mind mm. as soon as a printer comes along, as soon as better software comes along. I had no idea Adobe was cooking companies like that. I had no idea that the laser printers would arrive about a year and a half later. This is a Macintosh that didn't even have a hard drive. And in that, you know, that little, you know, little black and white screen, bluish it was, and white. And I knew right then, and I bought my first Mac about three months later. Well, no, about a year later, I bought the fat Mac. It was a 512K Mac instead of a 128. That was my first, was my first Mac. And, and then I became, I had PageMaker, eldest PageMaker. I had a serial number in the 400s. And then I bought Quark Express, which had more power, but but in the initial days was very hard to use. Because you could do such cool things. You could kern fonts and stuff like that. And I had no idea that that this would lead to upside, but what I knew was that I could start, I could promote myself to a higher level in the world of advertising by taking on some of the design responsibilities too. Now I could bill for copywriting and on design, not fancy ads but corporate newsletters and things like that. And so I migrated upward. And, and you migrated upwards in terms of skills. So now you're not only applying
0: to jobs where they'll have you and teach you, but now you're saying, okay, I've got, I've got these skills that, that you can offer. And this is what age and experience gets as well. You have these skills, so people are going to want them. And you had a vision that people were going to want them.
1: Yeah, and and my friend Tony Perkins and I, in 1985, put together an organization in Silicon Valley that that we thought was lacking. And again, he was the alpha entrepreneur in this, and I was was the guy who wrote newsletters for this organization, but we called it the Churchill Club and still exists today with about 7,000 members. Eric Schmidt, Roger McNamee, many of your guests, George Gilder, have Mm. spoken at the Churchill Club over the years, and we felt that there was... There was something lacking in the Silicon Valley environment. You had Stanford over here. You had Silicon Valley over there. There ought to be a third environment where you could bring really cool academic ideas and business ideas ideas together. So I began producing a newsletter for the Churchill Club, and and that was kind of a hit. We took a very cheeky attitude. Uh, We we, we made up some rules that uh, what, what you had to be to be a member of the Churchill Club and but and and it was all just funny stuff. I mean, the fact uh, the fact that you may have been born prematurely, you know, wouldn't exclude you from the Churchill Club because Churchill was born at ostensibly at six months or something. But of course he wasn't. It was just a convenient, you know, it was a it was a story that you needed to tell back in the days when he was born. and 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 Tony got the idea. one time he he comes running over to my condo in Palo Alto after work. He worked at Silicon Valley Bank. And he said, let's do a magazine. I've got a name for this magazine. Oh, yeah, what is it? Upside. And he raised $60,000 from a friend, a boyhood friend named Tim Draper. Hmm. Tim was just starting out as a third-generation venture capitalist. It was enough for Tony to quit his job. And by this time, I had bigger and more powerful Macs, and I had laser printers, and I could get stuff printed at a higher level than that, basically typesetting. And we did some mock-ups for for, for Upside Magazine, and, and we raised money. We, we, we started it. At this point, I knew nothing about Silicon Valley business, really. I was an ad copywriter, and I was a technical writer, but I didn't get the whole startup venture capital stuff. I just wasn't around it that close, kind of peripherally through the Churchill Club. And my model for a magazine, since I was the designer and the editor, and he was the businessman and the guy who sold ads, my model was, I wonder what would happen if we created a magazine that had the cheek of Sports Illustrated in its peak days in the 70s and 80s. Right, because you, you mentioned that in the book that, you know, obviously you were a big fan of
0: Sports Illustrated, and they they weren't just interesting. There were many sports magazines, and they weren't just interesting because of the news, but they were like really innovative in terms of design and and so on. And so, what if you had a you were you point out? Look, what if you had a, a business magazine or a magazine about in, uh, technology and business that had those kind of creative elements of Sports Illustrated? And I think that combination of ideas is how maturity works, really.
1: Well, when you've be, seen so many things. Yeah, and when I was an avid fan of Sports Illustrated, I was such an avid fan that I would neglect doing my homework in college, and I would wander off to the stacks in the library where hardbound copies of magazines were and i read every issue of sports illustrated from 1954 uh, up until the present and it became it really taught me what good writing was uh they had they had really great writers like george plimpton they had a great sports writer who just died a a few weeks ago dan jenkins um they had uh nita verchoth who covered olympic sports was very great the great frank Deford. Who is at the peak of his writing powers in the in the 1980s? They had and they had great illustration, caricatures. They know that nobody could show the tension and sweat of uh, of a golfer trying to make a six foot downhill putt to win a major. They either that putt either wins them the major golf tournament or they go into the playoff rounds. That's a hard putt to make under pressure, and they could show great caricatures like Arnold Roth and. And I thought, well, with Upside, we wouldn't have the photography. I mean, all business photography is some form of PR because they never let you in the room when big decisions are being made, right? right? It's always kind of reenacted. Everybody's happy. Everybody's got, you know, all teams are good. All corporate cultures are good and all that other BS. And, and all the pivotal moments, you know, when you when you didn't get the contract that would have been a company maker, or when you came up with the breakthrough and somehow you were able to get this product into the marketplace before the big companies were, or whatever it was, you could show that, not with photography, you could recreate it with caricature and illustration. So we were gonna be caricature and illustration, not photography led, and that just opened up a whole world. We did, uh, I hired a really good freelance writer who did a long investigative piece on Oracle, which was just going through some convulsions because Larry Ellison was was in trouble with the Securities and Exchange Commission. And we had a caricaturist, a, a really angry guy. All the best caricaturists, I think, are angry people who are trying to get revenge on the world. And we had one of those. I think he drank too much. He lived in Portland, Oregon, and he did Larry Ellison as Genghis Khan with severed heads at his feet.
0: That's funny. You know, and, and it reminds me, when you then moved on to forbes asap asap uh you know again that idea of bringing the really great writers into the arena you had tom wolf writing in forbes asap like it was you know you kind of again brought these elements as you got older and and as you matured and you keep bringing in stuff from prior lives to to
1: meet the future and you kept doing that so the question i have is someone- can i just say I can tell you tom wolf's story on that because tom wolf Tom Wolfe ratcheted up my confidence in two important areas, and and, and I've never forgotten. Number one, I asked him, we did an annual end of the year issue called The Big Issue, and the idea was to get writers who don't ordinarily write about technology to say something about technology. So this is 1996, internet one, before the bubble had really gotten to, you know, uh, it expanded to ridiculous levels, but a lot of excitement. Two years after Netscape hit the market, and, and Tom Wolf, I asked him to do a, a 500 word piece, begged him to do a 500 word piece. It's gotta be hard for Tom Wolf. And, and we pay him $5,000. And, and Tim Forbes, you know, who was kind of chief operating officer at the time, goes, What? I said, It's Tom Wolf. One day I'm sitting in the office with George Gilder, who would often travel out and write his great pieces for us. Um, and the fax machine starts to whir. And 58 pages later, spits out this Tom Wolfe first draft. And it it was about an 8,000-word draft. He typed in triple space. And then subsequent, which left him time. He was still using a typewriter. And that left him all kinds of room to make notations. And over the course of the next several weeks, he'd make these indecipherable notations. But I worked hard to decipher what he was He would use musical notes and things like that. He was... He was looking to amp up the Tom Wolf sound. I mean Tom Wolf is a great prose stylist in a first draft, but he's a brilliant prose stylist when you give him a little time to work on his craft and i I learned right then so many things about the craft of prose, so many things about the craft of prose, just by studying that I still have the box like what what were some of the things? Oh well, how you can how you can slow the great prose stylist can get you to read at the pace they want you to read. Have you ever had the, you know, notice that with some prose stylists you're just slowing down. With some prose stylists you're speeding up. I mean, Tom Wolfe could do both. He could slow you down, speed you up. He could throw the brakes on something. He, he could bring, he, he, he understood the alphabet both phonetically, the sounds it created, but visually. For example, if you want to if you really want to slow somebody down, use a lot of ascenders and descenders in words and a lot of vowels. What's an ascender? Well, like the word d, a, a non-capital d, the, the the upper part of the d is the ascender. The g is the descender. The o is a nice fat round vowel. So the word dog is jump always will jump out in print. It's a perfect word. It's a perfect mm. word because it it jumps out and it slows you down. It acts like breaks. Hmm. Acts like breaks. And so he could he he had that wonderful way of, of building to a crescendo and then taking you back down, building to a crescendo, taking you down, raising your pulse as you're reading it, you know, making you laugh. He could he could combine, since you do stand-up comedy, he was a really great comedian as a writer, and he could use he could use all the tricks that he had. To make you angry, make you laugh, and and so on.
0: And I feel he's someone who reinvented at, at a late yeah. age oh, in yeah. the sense that he went from these brilliant non-like literary nonfiction yeah. books to bonfire of the ba- to fiction. You know, as he was getting older, to bonfire of the vanities, a man in full, which is a brilliant book. Um, here's a here's
1: a question though, because this- oh, this just to, just to complete the the second thing I learned. From, I'll be here, quick here, is that I learned I could talk to people at that level. And I learned I could say, you, Tom, this is a great piece. And I'm certainly not going to line edit Tom Wolfe. But you know, if you just expanded on this point here, I think you would make the point ever more powerfully. And I never dreamed in my whole life that I would be having that uh. kind of conversation with Tom Wolfe. And that kind of ratcheted me up to a different level of dealing with important people. that I, And I never I never lost that.
0: Well, and I feel like we could almost do an entire podcast about this Tom Wolf article, but I want to ask, like, if someone's listening to this, they're 40, 45, 50, and they're thinking, boy, it's too late for me to be, I'm hearing these guys talk, but it's too late for me to be a late bloomer. I don't really know what I, what my passions are. I've just been doing this one job or, or, you know, I've got responsibilities. I've got the mortgage. What, how should they be thinking? Like, how, what could they
1: try? What could they practice? Sure. I've got a chapter in, in Late Bloomers called, it's, it's about this idea of repotting, that somewhere out there is a, is a pot of soil that's the ideal pot of soil for you. It will nourish your gifts. And if you're, if you're in your 40s, let's say, and you do have a mortgage or you're raising kids, in other words, you, you don't have the luxury of radically repotting, suddenly changing your profession in a profound way or moving here or moving there, kind of a luxury of the young, kind of a luxury of the unattached or the single, kind of a luxury of, of maybe people are retired and, and, and they've adequately saved enough money for the retirement. I, I'm a big believer, look at adjacent spaces. And I use two mm. examples in the book. One is a former advertising copywriter named Kimberly Harrington, who moved out of the Los Angeles cauldron of advertising and decided she wanted to write serious essays and novels but realized she had to lower her expenses to be able to do that. And she moved to Vermont and here she's transferring her wonderful copywriting skills to writing fiction and long essays. So she isn't completely throwing over all the skills that she's built. She's simply transferring them to an adjacent space. So I have, I have a question about that because, and I love that story and how she
0: even evolved what type of fiction and so on uh, in the book. So, I'm always interested in the 10,000 hour role. The idea that you need 10,000 hours of what's called deliberate practice, uh, which, which is described in my podcast with Anders Ericsson, 10,000 hours of deliberate practice to become a true master at something. And so you're, what you're saying is really she's borrowing hours from her prior career to basically make this new career. So, so instead of starting from scratch at writing, she's starting at the 6,000 hour point, say, or the 8,000 hour point. And do you think that's a, 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 an important thing is sort of like almost do this internal audit. What are the skill sets I've, I've built up even mentally or emotionally or physically? And how do I take them into an adjacent space? Well, you could even make a list. What are all the adjacent spaces to these things?
1: Well, one, uh, the other example I use is my friend and colleague, former colleague, Quentin Hardy. Quentin Hardy was the San Francisco Bureau chief of Forbes. Then he became a very highly esteemed, technology reporter for the New York Times, did some terrific work on artificial intelligence, big data, analytics, all of that cutting-edge stuff. And then one day it hit him that the Times, the financial department at the Times, was questioning whether he really needed to stay an extra night at the Doubletree Hotel in Austin, Texas. And he goes, it's over. I mean, nobody was firing, but he knew it was over at that point, that all raises, all, all promotions even some, some sense of both internal and external esteem that it wasn't going to get better. So he repotted it himself into a place that many journalists think they will never go until they learn how it really operates. He became the editor of Google Cloud, the editor of content at Google Cloud, reporting directly to Diane Greene. I mean, what a wonderful opportunity to report to a co-founder of VMware mm. and the CEO of Google Cloud. Now, is Quentin in part pr- promoting the Google storyline? Sure, but he authentically believes in it. He is stimulated by this these cloud wars, the race to to be dominant in the cloud, along with Amazon's AWS and Microsoft's Azure and and some other offerings out there. He's re- it, it plays into all of his strengths. He's allowed in his role to do what he loves to do, which is to be a panel moderator at all kinds of technology panels. He has a lot of latitude. They hired him because they trust him, and they, they, they aren't looking over his shoulders. He's not writing press releases and things like that. And I've talked to a lot of senior journalists who've done that, and they were kind of shocked to learn that the PR at that level is more of a management consulting role. Hmm. I mean, it really uses powers that were kind of fun to develop. Because
0: communication is such a core skill. So you can borrow those skills that you, those 10,000 hours you spent communicating to masses to help others figure out how to communicate. And that's a reinvention and maybe a more lucrative one, like in this case. So, so, um, I keep getting the, uh, rap signal. There's there's so much more I wanted to to talk about, but I we we hit some some great points, and I do think this book is a is so important, particularly for someone like me. I'm I'm 51. I still don't know what I want to do with my life, and I got a lot of hope from this, and a lot of ideas and techniques on how I can think about reinvention. And I even wrote a best selling book called Reinvent Yourself. So I feel like this is this added considerably to my, my knowledge of the topic. And, um, you know, there was one thing in there I I just wanted to bring up. You mentioned how Einstein had achieved his greatest success around the age of 25. And that's often the case in the sciences, but it's very interesting. I read a a piece on this where the difference between people in their twenties and the people in their fifties is that often the people in their twenties are just much more prolific. So it turns out with with scientists, they have the same odds of success per discovery as a scientist in their fifties. It's just that they do many more discoveries. So Einstein's actually most cited paper was when he was 56 and it was the one questioning, uh, you know, the one where he says God doesn't play dice in terms of quantum mechanics, but it was just, he had to wait that long because he wasn't writing as much as he got older. So, so again, the youth, uh, is more prolific because they could just think of lots of things, as you were saying, using those synapses that are firing more quickly, but they, they're still just as smart or smarter later on. They're just not as prolific.
1: Well, to go back to our uh, a guy that I mentioned, Conan Goldberg, the neuroscientist at NYU, we got into a discussion about this, and he, this isn't his phrase, but I ran the phrase by him, and he, and he liked the phrase a lot. It's called cre- creative yield, as opposed to raw creativity, it goes to your point that the young people are more prolific, but the batting average is possibly better as you get a little older—not not way old in the field of science, but but older—and it has to go back to a point we talked about earlier that you've got you've chunked a lot more things as you get older, and all of that is a library. I mean, it's a hugely useful library, so you can have a creative perception perceived by the right side of your brain, and now, well, is it really valuable or not? Just in the same way, you know, is this person I re- somebody I really want to engage with or not? You know, are they fundamentally honest? I, I'm feeling something. They're leaving me a little bit creepy. They're overselling or they're doing something, you know, that makes you feel, and, and then you, you you're, that's your perception, and then you look for the relevant models. But the, I think the same thing is true with, with ideas. And so a story that I told in the book was, was Bill Walsh, the football coach, one of my heroes. He died in 2007, but he was the guy who led the San Francisco 49ers, great renaissance, and he's credited for inventing what is called the West Coast offense in football, which is still a pretty dominant form, high percentage, shorter passes using the whole field. And he got that insight when he was at a low point in his life. He was the head coach for the first time in his life, but it was at a semi-professional team that practiced on a lumpy high school field and played in junior college stadiums. Uh, It was called uh, the San Jose Apaches. And one day after practice on one of these lumpy high school fields, he hears a whistle and he walks into the gym and and there's a basketball team practicing inbounding the ball against a full court press. And, Sometimes full-court presses succeed by just causing panic on the, on the team with the ball. But if you really know what to do, you can defeat a full-court press pretty easily, and you do it by picking and rolls and screens and finding somebody open to throw to. And all of a sudden, uh, Walsh, is, Walsh is at the time in his mid or late 30s, and he's, he's a coach of a semi-professional team, basically bar bouncers and, and people like that working for $50 a game. And he has that insight. What if if I could create a football offense that looked like inbounding the ball against a full-court press? And then he got the chance to try that at the Cincinnati Bengals where he was offensive coordinator and their number one quarterback who had a strong arm went down and their number two quarterback had a weak arm, but he had great peripheral vision and it worked pretty well. And then he was able to – he had the insight to draft Joe Montana when a lot of people had passed Joe Montana – because Joe Montana had been, he, he, the rap on Montana, even though he was a starter at Notre Dame, was that he had a weak arm and he was too skinny to play in the NFL. Montana was an all-state basketball player as a guard. And he was offered a full-ride scholarship to play for Jim Valvano at North Carolina State. Tremendous peripheral vision. And that's exactly what Bill Walsh wanted. And I just love that. Is a creative insight borrowed from an adjacent field chunked up against all the memories that you'd had.
0: I think that's incredibly important. This idea of adjacency combined with what are the skills you you've built up and, and kind of diversifying your experience. So you could really find, explore those passions. What excites you? Cause you, as you found more and more of the things that excites, excited you until you really found your, your lane that you that you, you were able to drive through and i think again i just want to say there's so many ideas and exercises and things to think about and and even science in this book L- L- late bloomers which which gave me a lot of hope and encouragement about constant reinvention constantly being able to pursue your 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 dreams and 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 your and discover and uncover your talents so uh late bloomers the power of patience in a world obsessed with early achievement, uh, also just a lot of stuff in there about the dangers of early achievement, and you gave great examples. Early, I, pre-
1: early pressures. I underlined a yeah.
0: lot of things that I want my kids to read because I think they're so stressed out. Anyway, by by by,
1: Rich Carlgaard, thank you for coming on, on the podcast. I really appreciate it. James, I can now cross off something on my bucket list. I've met you and I've been on your show. Thank you so much for that, having that's me. That's nice for you to say, thanks so much.